Dr. Amalia Ganyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Women in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us in studio today in Johannesburg is Dr. Lulu Guagua, who is the CEO of Lareco Investments, chairperson of Oricon Africa, and non-executive director for First Rand, MassMart, and Sun International. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Malaka, and thank you very much uh, to you and your listeners. We're so glad you could join us, especially on our theme now where we're focusing on women in the corporate space. And to begin with, your career has not really been a traditional career. You've spanned three core sectors of society, public sector, academics, as well as the private element. And in some of your positions, you've really had a significant social impact in the housing and spatial arrangements of South Africa. For example, you served on the 12-member commission for the delineation and demarcation of provincial boundaries, which decided the country's current provisional setup, or boundaries rather. That's an enormous responsibility to undertake with a great deal of socioeconomic sensitivities. Can you tell us more about that? Indeed, I think um, I've had the privilege and I've been immensely blessed with uh, opportunities. I think the, the kind of work that I've done and I continue to do, it really starts in Krumuk village, a small rural village in KwaZulu-Natal, which was part of the Eastern Cape uh, before these boundaries that I was involved in. And I think the development or what you call the socioeconomic impact uh, in terms of the work that I've done, it really comes out of where I grew up and my own experiences as a child growing up in a rural village, in a in a big family, and um, having to fetch water in the river and all the other chores that women do, working in the fields with my, with my father, who was a school principal. So it really starts in the way that I was brought up in the environment within which uh, I grew up, which is a rural village where every child is everybody's uh, child. So I, I find that the many things that I do, both in the corporate sector and just the, the inclination of what I end up doing and some of the work that I do in my own uh, personal time really draws from that. And looking at betterment of infrastructure, making life easier, than having to still you know, live under rural circumstances. Absolutely. I mean, one of the key things which, um, I mean, I'll come back to that to say I ended up being a town planner, which was completely by default. But in a sense, being a town planner, they, all, they always say everything happens for a reason. Now I know why I ended up in planning because the issue of space and spatial inequality um, in South Africa spatial inequality in the continent and in the world. We talk about develop, developing countries. That, that's about spatial inequality. It's really core to what I do and the things that uh, really interest me. So when you talk about infrastructure, it is about how do you improve the life of people staying in rural areas, for example. So it's not just about uh, economic infrastructure, which is critical, 
uh, which is a catalyst for economic development, but is also social infrastructure or sometimes what we call economic infrastructure actually has got social implications, depending on where you put that infrastructure. So the issue of the relationship between development in general, socio-economic development, and spatial equality is something that's very important to me, and infrastructure is very, very important there. Uh, For me, I always say to, as you said earlier on, I chair the board of Oricon, and those are engineers, and I always say to, to, to the engineers there, ultimately, for me, the test of the work that we do as engineers is whether uh, my grandmother or my cousin in Krumuk, uh, because they are the ones who are fetching water from the river. When that child is sick, it is them who are taking to the clinic. So whether that road uh, is there or not, and how far that clinic is and where it's located, it actually impacts on women more than anybody else because it's them who actually have to take that child. If that child has to go to school and has to walk miles and miles and miles, it is the woman again who has to wake up earlier to prepare the child. And when that child comes back, they're hungry and they've hurt themselves on the road or, or whatever else. It's impacts. Infrastructure is just core to me as a woman. And I think I come back to the issue of it's my own background, it's my own context, it's my own lived experience, yeah, most of the things that I do, which is why um, I, I do the things I do with a smile because it think, I don't have to really wreck my brain. It's, it's things that I've been through and I continue to go through because I go to Krumok still. Everything is interconnected and without being able to get those interconnections, whether it is looking at the digital space on having a virtual interconnections, but more intensively in the physical sense of being able to connect people to destinations, connect children to schools, Mm. connect people to clinics, to home, to their workspace. And that just wraps up the whole infrastructure story to make life easier so that people can function in society. Absolutely. Another key element, and this stays in the same track that we're talking about, is that you're instrumental in developing a policy for the transformation of the construction industry. You managed a 609 million rand job creation program. The program was named by the International Labour Organization as one of the best in the developing world. And I wanted to ask you on that, was women's empowerment in the construction ecosystem a factor of transformation in the industry? Uh, that's a very interesting one because, to, to, to be quite honest, when we started with that work uh, in the National Department of Public Works, which I joined, again, it's one of those opportunities that just land on your, on, on your lap and you think, okay, let's drop everything that we're doing. Because at the time I was actually trying to uh, complete my PhD, I thought, okay, let's park that. Let's take this opportunity of being part of uh, the new civil service. In, in South Africa when I joined the National Department of Public Works uh, in 1995. And one of my responsibility was the construction industry and the other one was the National Public Works Program, which was e- essentially one of the key programs, job creation programs, that was in- introduced by by the new government uh, under President Mandela. So when, when we started, we were looking primarily at um, reaching out to those communities that had no access comes back to the same issue that we discussed earlier on. So at at the center of what we did, we did not necessarily, uh, on reflection, place the issue of women infrastructure 
at the center of what we're doing. But I guess because of, if you're talking about um, poverty and you're talking about access, you're talking about people who haven't had opportunities, it's almost invariable that women will actually come back and be at the center of that. So when we started um, a program, which we call the Emerging Contractor Development Program in the National Department of Public Works, certainly women were part of, of that program. But at the time, uh, women uh, were very few in the industry. And I think there still are very few in, in, in the industry. The industry is still very much male-dominated. And so although we worked as part of that program to make sure that the women that participated uh, in the program, certainly not at the core. But in terms of the National Public Works Program, as I said earlier on, because we were looking, there was one of the elements of the National Public Works Program was the community-based public works program. And that's the one that was evaluated by ILO at the time, and they deemed it one of the best in the in the developing world. It was primarily looking at community-based infrastructure. And again, if you're talking about community-based infrastructure, it is about access roads. It is about how do we connect those uh, th those women that are working in the fields to markets. It is about those access roads. It was about the community halls. It about about the clinics. And whilst in the process of creating that infrastructure and making those connections, you also make sure that you you are, are creating skills, but all, you are building skills in the community to make sure that that infrastructure is maintained going forward. But also you you creating jobs and providing job opportunities uh, for communities, which um, which if you think about it, it's actually not rocket science because you are creating infrastructure anyway. But if you just uh, wear a slightly different hat and say, I am going to purposefully and deliberately make sure that I also build skills and create jobs. And a lot of people will say it's inefficient by its very nature, but actually it's not. It's, a, it's about how you design in, into your designs you actually have that in mind. And that's what we did. And the, the ILO proved through their evaluation and international benchmark that we were able to achieve that through that program. must feel incredibly rewarding to have had such a meaningful impact uh, socially, apart from developing the infrastructure, but being able to enable people to have the skills the know-how, whether mm. it's in the construction space or ultimately any other space, but you've provided that enablement for them to move ahead with their lives. Absolutely. Now, turning more towards yourself, you're currently CEO of Lireco Investments, a black-owned investment company, chairperson of Oricon Africa, a global engineering consulting company. You also serve as non-executive director of First Rand, MassMart, Sun International, Additionally, you're involved in philanthropic work in rural KZN through the Imkahazi? Makazi. Through the Makazi Trust, which you founded. It empowers local youth. That's extremely impressive in any form or standard. So I have to ask you, how do you manage to continuously deliver on your A-game? I think it's about, ultimately it's about purpose. 
why am I actually doing this? I find for myself, if I'm able to answer that question, it's a lot easier um, because then when I wake up in the morning, I know that um, I have committed to do X, Y, Z and for to what end. So as I said earlier on, for me, ultimately, it is about it is about impact. So the issue of impact and the issue of um, of legacy, the issue of making a meaningful contribution, is something that um, that that is core to my to my belief system. I was brought up by men who believe very strongly that um, in vernacular, which is closer, he, say, he used to say, now, of course, I have to translate that, and it doesn't quite uh, give it. It's almost like if you throw something at the beginning of the river, you'll actually catch it at the bottom of the river. That's just the literal trans- translation. So it is about... If you, which, which you said it's about investment and it's nurturing, about, uh, absolutely, and, and, and reaping the yeah, rewards. The rewards, and if you go in there, and the purpose is about, I want to make that contribution. So it's it, it, it's very different from saying, um, I'm going there to make the next uh, 500 million rand. In saying that, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having 500 million rand. Of course, it's great. If I had that, I would not have been stuck in traffic now with the with the accident. I would have simply took, taken my jet. So it makes life easier. But what I'm saying is that if you're going there with the purpose of making that, the rest of the other things will come, but they're not like your starting point and they're not your end game, but they will come yeah, in a sense. And that's what I found is that um, the work that I do and I continue to do. And also, um, because of the work I do, I've developed immense relationships and network base. So I am able, for example, in the uh, uh, foundation or the trust that I, I founded, the Magazine Trust, which does work with uh, uh, young uh, people in, in Krumuk and, and surrounding areas, because of the network base and, and also uh, integrity, which is also key to it, I'm able to pick up a call to one of the companies that I'm involved in and say to my CEO at Masmat, um, in Krumok, they are going to be writing a metric and, and they're holding a camp for a week and the children are going to be sleeping at school. And is it possible to, to contribute or uh, to donate some food? Now, the CEO knows who I am. Because of integrity, he knows that I'm not trying to get groceries from my house or groceries for my cousin or my cousin's wedding. If I'm, I'm, a, I'm a woman of my word, if I say it is for that school, then he knows that it is for that school. So I think that doing things uh, f- with a purpose and making sure that integrity is at the core of who you are just opens further opportunities for you. And this is what I found in, in, in my experience and in the work that I do. So I've got a whole range of people that I work with that I call for advice, I call for support, and they, they make it possible for me to do some of the things that I do and also to, to be part of the things that they do, which is also great. Everything that you've spoken about today seems to be about interconnections, whether that's on a personal level, whether mm. it's on a physical level, on being able to build it. 
which for me also says that those are, are the roots that we need collaboration in order to progress and move ahead. It's because I think that human beings, by their very nature, we connect. That's what makes the difference between uh, the, the human part of the being is about that connection. So the happier people and people that make more impact and people who um, have legacy, be it you take uh, our uh, 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 President Mandela, those are the people who had strong connections, who had the ability to connect and people who uh, built relationships. But I come back to the point I raised earlier on. It's about connecting with a purpose and that purpose is about a better life for all. And uh, remember, I've got two children. And so at the center of it is also the selfishness of saying, I'm a mother of two, and I do want them to have a better, to live in a better world than the world that I was in. So um, again, it's about those connections or relationships, be it at family level. If you don't have a strong relationship at a very basic level, at family level, you 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 you're gonna have a harder life out there. But if you've got stronger uh, relationships inside your own family, be it your children, be it your spouse, your siblings, when things are tough out there, you know somebody's gonna rub your feet when you get home. Somebody's gonna offer you a cup of tea. If you don't have good relationships with somebody who just works in your house, I've got somebody who's been working in my house for the last twenty years. Uh, Rose, Rose is so loyal, and it is about the relationship that we've built with her. So wherever you go, build relationships. I think for me, that's the key thing. Build relationships, build those networks, and don't burn bridges. In your career, you've reached the pinnacle of success. But one of the things that I found is that there tends to be this vacuum of women as we grow up the corporate ladder. So at senior level, according to the Business Women's Association in South Africa, they frequently do a census. The last one I saw was in, in 2015 of JSC companies, and it indicated that women accounted for 29.3% of executive managers, 21.8% of directors, 9.2% of chairpersons, but only 2.4% of CEOs. And I always think, considering that women represent more than 50% of the South African population, they are significantly underrepresented in leadership and managerial roles. How do you think we can improve the representation of women in leading roles like corporate boards and top management positions than the situation we have today? I think part of it is being a lot clearer in our minds as to why it is the case. Because it is not because women do not want to make contributions at that level or that women are not ambitious or that women are not... um, uh, lifting their hands and saying, "I'm here. I'm. 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 I'm ready to serve." Women, by their very nature, we serve. I mean, we serve our families, we serve our communities, and therefore, to serve corporate, to serve at 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 political level, is something that that we are capable of doing. But I think at the the center of it is about those gender relationships at the very core level. So, if as society we're not looking at what is happening at a, at, a, at a family level again, at a household level, at a personal relationship level. Because if there's a woman, incidentally, I was talking 
to a young woman that um, I mentored just yesterday afternoon. I was saying to her, one of the biggest decisions that you make as a woman, if you want to get married, who you get married to, because that has got such a big impact on your career going forward. Because if you're married to somebody whose preoccupation is being your husband, then you are in big trouble because then they are constantly reminding you that you are not Lulu Gwagwa, you are somebody's wife. And that is problematic. In saying that, I am not suggesting I am married and I've been married for a very long time and I am a career woman. But because with that individual that you are with, you are constantly negotiating space But I think what has happened in terms of gender relations is that men don't negotiate that space and that time in the home. They have it. Well, in the past, I think it was very much of a dictate. That's exactly the point. They have it. So they're not negotiating. And so if somebody has it and they own it and it's theirs for life, so you've got, you're just picking up the crumbs. And I think that's one of the fundamental issues. And that... At, soci- at a social cultural level, obviously business exists in a social cu- it's a social cultural environment, and therefore uh, you don't expect that when you come to corporate, those relationships between men and women are going to change. Men sitting there, they know women are not ambitious, so they they're not looking for the promotion. Uh, women are are not ready. Women are soft. Women are weak. Women don't know much, and 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 and. So that attitude and that uh, unconscious bias against women is actually there. So part of it is, I think, working both with girls and boys. I think there's a lot of work that is being done internationally, included at the UN level. But a lot of focus is on girls, which is good. But I think we're also losing an opportunity to work with boys, for boys to understand what it means to be in a relationship, what it means to work with women, and that we're all capable. And, 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 and so if you are strengthening women and you're losing the awareness and building men, at some point you're going to get into men that have this complex and you start to get to, into an anti-women kind of attitude. So what am I saying? I'm saying it is important to work at a social cultural level in terms of those gender relationships. It is important to work on the unconscious bias, bring that awareness at the corporate level. And also it is important to sponsor women because anybody who ends up being a CEO, there's nobody, I mean, honestly, who ends up being a CEO who wasn't sponsored by somebody. Sponsor is somebody who, who, who spotted you, and who made sure that your path goes in that direction of being a CEO. You don't wake up on your own and say, I'm going to be a CEO and off I go. You are going to find somebody who's influential in the company and that person is going to decide you are the person and they're going to make it possible. They are going to mentor you. They are going to open opportunities for you. When that uh, plum project that is being done in Rwanda that's important for the business comes up, they're going to put you in the project team. At the moment, women don't have those sponsors uh, within businesses. So I think we can't sit in business at senior level and say, talk about these numbers uh, and, and lament women uh, being very few without us doing something about it. I think the training, 
development programs and all of that are important, but I think at the core of it is that sponsorship. It's interesting. We also had Professor Sonia Brown from Howick University, and one of the things we were talking about mentorship, and she said, actually, I think sponsorship is more important. It is. Because mentoring will be grooming, but sponsoring is putting the person in the spotlight where everybody can see yeah. her capabilities, what she can do, and what she can bring to better the company. Mentorship helps you at a technical level. Here is a project. This is, I mean, I'm a town planner. Okay, I'm designing something. So, okay, maybe it's better to do it at this angle because of these reasons. If you do this, that, that's mentorship. I mean, they're mentoring in terms of the concrete things that I do. But once I'm ready, I've now mastered the design. Who is going to say, actually, she's mastered the design. She's ready to go to another level. And I think that's where the sponsorship is somebody who's going to, when there's a presentation to the board, they're going to put you in the team that's going to do the presentation at the board. So when succession plans are presented to the board, board members say, oh, yeah, Lulu, oh, is she the one who was presenting uh, two months ago? That's the one. And the board is like, we've seen her. She really knows her stuff. She's confident. She's all of that. But at the moment, you sit at board, teams come to present, it's men. Women, you hardly see. Succession plans come. There's Lulu's name. We've never heard about here. We're reluctant. Hiring at that level is a big risk. It's one of the biggest decisions. In fact, it is the biggest decision that you make as a board is who you appoint at that level. So you want to go safe as well. So you've never seen her. You don't know her. You're kind of mm, reluctant. John's name come and say, yeah, we've seen John. Let's go with John. We'll, we'll put additional training for Lulu and then we'll see next time. And of course, she still doesn't pitch for that presentation. So sponsorship is very, very. Mm. I'm not undermining mentoring. I'm not um, undermining coaching. I think having done all, all of those, the next step, the critical step for executive level is sp sponsorship. sponsorship. One of the other things that I wanted to ask you, I know that you were profiled by Dr. Judy Lamini for her doctorate thesis and her book, Equal But Different. And when I interviewed her, we spoke about the, the intersection um, of social class, race, gender, and the impact that it has on female leaders' career progression. Can you share some of your thoughts on this topic? When I was talking to Judy, when she was interviewing me for, for her PhD, looking at, at the, the, that intersection, I think one of the things is that if you look at particularly women, I guess it probably would be the same with other people, but in particular with women, when you trace women leaders, you are able to actually see that interconnection. And I think that if I talk about myself, I grew up in a rural area, my father was a teacher, which immediately provided that opportunity. And my father, in a sense, when he was moving around different schools, he moved with me and so provided that opportunity for me in terms of education. So education becomes really, really key in providing that platform. I'm not saying it is only educated. There are a lot of edu there are many educated women who haven't really um, had the opportunity to break that class ceiling. But I'm saying education becomes quite important as that point that gives you that possibility of moving in your career and in breaking that glass ceiling. So if you look at a lot of women, 
education would have been key quite early on. And in a number of instances also, um, there would have been some, or at least in my case, a very strong man who was a strong father who provided that guidance as well. So that also is very, very important. And in my career, there have been strong women who've also supported me. For example, when I got to um, LSE, when I was studying uh, for my master's, uh, Professor uh, uh, Moser, who was a woman, a very, very strong woman there, saw something and I lacked a confidence and a self-esteem having coming from South Africa at the time, being black and being a female. But I think she saw something and really put pressure, but compassionate pressure to try and draw something, that something that was in there. So having somebody like that who really say, you've got it, you've got it. And that affirmation was very important. And I think um, for me, that was really one of the biggest turning points in my career is the affirmation that I got from the Caroline Moser. Because she was a woman, also strong, head of department in, in that instant, and saying that, that I can do more. And I actually, in the end, did more and ended up pa- uh, 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 passing uh, my master's at LSE Cum Laude. And it was purely because somebody affirmed me. And I think it is important to, to, to affirm women. I mean, I am today where I am, but I was saying to the young woman I was talking to yesterday again, that that affirmation is still important to me, even today. Again, it's got a lot to do with us as women and where we come from where we constantly think, maybe I'm a fraud, maybe I'm not supposed to be here, maybe I don't belong here, where the spaces that we are in are not quite ours. And so you feel like you are an invited guest around the boardroom, but actually it's not yours. So either affirmation by other women or self-affirmation also, uh, building your own base of say, how do I affirm myself? Uh, when I go to that boardroom to actually make sure that I make a contribution. I know as much as they do. I've prepared also, uh, sometimes if not more, I've prepared more than them because uh, because I need that validation around the boardroom table. You've mentioned the young lady that, that you're mentoring and I'm, I'm sure she's not the only one. Yeah. You have a passion for developing people, whether it is through your trust or through your quarterly girls' lunch with Dr. Lulu. Can you share with us a few of the highlights on how these initiatives have managed to impact on people's lives? I think the 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 girl, I mean, I work with a lot, a, a number of young women and um, it's it's a passion of mine. And that has a lot to do, as I said earlier on, with people like Caroline Moser, who worked with me and who pushed me to be where I am, who kept saying to me, it is possible, you can do this. And I was able to do it in the end. And also somebody who was a Karen Levy, who was a supervisor for my, for my PhD. My PhD, I did it over several years because I dropped it parked it, took a job, parked it, had children. And she kept coming back and saying, but Lulu, brilliant work that you've done. You can't drop it now. 
So I know what it means to have somebody in your corner. And so I've made it my business to be at the corner of a number of young women. So the girls' lunch I started uh, last year. It really started with me having lunch conversations with my daughter and uh, her cousins, my sister's children. I come from a very big family, so there are a number of them. And then their friends, they invited their friends. And then the friends invited friends. And then... Uh, you had uh, to get a bigger venue. Yes. So before we knew, we were now not at home or in a restaurant, we were a big venue. So now I have these lunches every quarter. And it's between at 30 to 35 young uh, women. And I decided to go for the group of 21 to about 35 because they either they are in that very uh, uh, transitional stage it's very where foundational. you 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 either finishing university you're not sure whether to go for a postgraduate degree or not or you're starting your new job and you don't even know what goes on in corporate and so uh, I thought let me because I know what it it felt like for me as a young woman at that time you starting relationships as well uh, boyfriends you're not sure whether for real or not you're not sure whether to think about getting married or not you're swearing you'll never get married and 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 you you start you're starting to have issues with your parents you're not sure whether to leave home or to stay and so you're finding your space and you're desperate and it's all very confusing which is a very different thing from adolescence so i don't i don't want to go there so i'm not dealing with that lot it's the lot beyond so it's it is about i say we talk about everything and nothing and it is about really providing a platform for them to raise all these issues that are confusing for them and to also network with other young women who are at the same level as them. Because sometimes you just need to know that somebody else is dealing with the same issues. So it's not because you're stupid or you're behind or anything. Then you start to feel, oh, okay, I'm on the right track, Moss, if everybody's feeling this way. But what after two lunches, I worked out that actually I'm not going to add as much value if it's just me and each lunch. So let me invite bigger girls like me, about four or five, to actually anchor the conversation uh, with me. So each lunch, there's like four of us. And again, I draw from my network base. So I will draw uh, four other women and we'll sit with these young, young women over lunch, really breaking bread. It's informal. Anything is on the table and everything goes. And it's been very important because out of that, somebody says, well, I was looking for this. What do you think? Okay, I'll connect you with so-and-so. Let me put out an email to so-and-so, so-and-so, meet so-and-so. These four other big girls as well do the same. Again, coming back to the issue of networks, the last lunch, I invited FNB. I sit on the board. I said, please bring us somebody to come and talk about personal finance. When I started working, nobody talked about, to me about personal finance, that credit cards are a trouble. I thought, well, working, first thing, credit card. First thing, let me go and buy higher purchase, my new uh, bedroom suit. I didn't know that this is a, a no-go zone. Uh, so we invited FNB again, didn't pay for anything because this is what FNB does. They are in this space. So they came and they spoke to the young women. We're having lunch uh, on the 2nd of December. And again, we've invited somebody to talk about uh, visioning. So we'll be visioning for 2018. 
So each young woman will be working on a visioning, personal visioning board for 2018. So because there's so many women out there, young women who need mentoring, coaching, sponsorship, I'd like to do that, but there are only 24 hours in a day. So this Girls' Lunch is another platform where you I'm able to talk to 35 women, young women at the same time and provide uh, some, uh, some, some support and provide a platform for them. And um, I've had really, really remarkable uh, uh, feedback from the, from the young women. I mean, the one young woman that we had two lunches ago um, who's, Ill, who's uh, got an, an illness and she came there depressed and um, I don't think I can do anything. There's no point in going on because I'm ill. And the other young woman says, well, who's not dying? I mean, because, because at that age, people just talk like that. They challenged her because she said she's got a terminal illness. And the other girl said, what do you mean terminal illness? We're all terminal here. Who said when we walk out there, we're going to be not going to be knocked off by a car? So whilst I was still thinking about how I'm going to address it, the other girls were on here. They didn't give her a chance. What was really moving for me is the last lunch, which is the second lunch she came. She said, when they start in, you know, checking in, she said, you know what? After the last lunch, I'm done with the terminal illness because everybody's dying. I'm getting on with my life, going back to school. I'm taking, I'm, I'm looking at that promotion. And I was like, who's talking? How did we get here? But it was just, as I say, I did nothing. I didn't say anything. It was just the platform of having other women and giving her that opportunity to talk to other people. And mine was simply to provide a platform. So, it, it's, so it's almost creating the right environment. Right environment. The ingredients. For those, exactly, for those conversations. And it just sparks. And for those connections. And it all goes. So I, as you can hear, I'm extremely passionate about this. <laughs> One of the questions that I ask all my guests on the show who've made incredible contributions to their respective careers and disciplines is about some of the factors that they consider to have been key areas to to their success. Hard work is always a, a common one, perseverance or a particular person in their life. Can you share with us what you think have been some of the, the key factors that have driven your success? I think for me at the center of it has been where I come from, both in terms of my family and the community that I come from. I think what that has done um, in the midst of all the opportunities that I've had kept me grounded. And so um, my father used to say, as you can hear, I'm very close. I'm a firstborn of five girls. And I always say to people, I'm the son that he never had. So I had a very close relationship uh, with my father. He used to say, when we were growing up, wherever you are, if you do something and you think, if I appeared, you would run away, then you should know that you shouldn't be doing it. It's as simple as all that. And that very simple thing has stayed with me, like everywhere I go, whatever I do. I almost, my father died 35 years ago, but... I swear, if I'm doing something and I'm not sure, I actually think about my father, would I have run away if he appeared and if he knew this is what I was doing? So I think for me, the issue of being grounded 
in who you are is very important. I think I need to have my feet on the ground and then have my hands and my head in the air, in the globe. But without that, those feet on the ground, I'm on shaky ground. So I can't really anchor myself on anything. So it's been an important thing, that thing of being really, really grounded. I think it, for me has been one of the key things in terms of my success, which has made sure that the issue of ethics and integrity, therefore, are very important to me. And I think as you progress in your career, <laughs> there are many things that come your way in different shapes and forms, and you really need to discern which one and whether you should or you shouldn't. If you are invited to sit on a board, it's always flattering. You need now to sit and think, why am I actually invited on this board? Who is this company? If my children knew that this is what this company does, would they still respect me if I'm associated with this business? So it is those things which are important. As you said earlier on, the issue of hard work, the issue of education has been core to, to me. The issue of relationships, and all of those have been very, very important to me. But at the center of it has been that groundedness and integrity has been almost the center and the, the umbrella that actually has pulled all of those things together for me. I have this wonderful picture formed in my head of strong, heavy, big feet rooted into the ground, anchoring nurturing up to a value system that is robust, ethical, mm. integrity, mm. but at the same time allowing this freedom to, to reach absolutely. out and latch on to opportunities mm. and allow them to grow. Mm. Absolutely. I, I think, I mean, I can't underestimate the people that have made it possible for me as well. I mean, I think I've, I've mentioned a number, of, a number of those people that have made it possible because in the end, as I keep saying, it is other people out there who make it possible for you, you know, be it your PA or somebody who's working in your house who makes it possible for me to wake up in the morning, put on my dress and off and come back at night. The house is clean and uh, food is prepared. That support system is core for women. Without that support system for women, you are in trouble uh, because in the end, children will call a mother. My husband is a medical doctor. At some point he was working in Pretoria and I was working in Joburg. And my son was at Pretoria Boys High School and he broke an arm. And guess who he called? Mom. He called mom. But mom is in Joburg. He is in Pretoria and his father is a medical doctor. doctor. On top of that, I'm not a medical doctor. And it's got nothing to do with the father. It's about the mother that ultimately the children are going to call you regardless of their relationship, strong relationship with their father, regardless of how caring that father is. Where am I going with this? If you don't have that support system, therefore, you're in trouble. Because if they can't find their socks, they're going to call mommy. Mommy, where are my socks? I don't know. I didn't pack your socks. So I think having that support system for women and giving ourselves permission to build that support base, because sometimes we feel guilty about having a cook a cleaner, um, an au pair, a driver. We kind of feel like it means I'm not a mother. It means I'm not a father. It means I'm not a wife. It means I'm not a good uh, daughter-in-law if I do, I've got all of these things. 
Who said to be a mother means you've got to wash all the socks physically yourself? Who said that? Mother means you, I got pregnant and I delivered a child. That's what mother is. It's not necessarily washing of socks, you know. Being a slave. Precisely. So I think that sometimes we think that we've got to do this ourselves. And I think we, we also need to, to really liberate ourselves by building that strong support system, having a PA, if you can afford it, have it too, you know, have all of that, which therefore frees you to participate and also to see the opportunities. Because if you are stuck in washing socks, the opportunity is going to fly by. You're not saying because your, your eyes are in the socks that you are washing and the opportunity is flying by, you didn't even see it. And then you you complaining that uh, James got the opportunity. It's because his, his eyes were up. And yours were in the socks. That's why. So sometimes we also not don't necessarily do ourselves the, the favors. Very important to yeah. look at the bigger picture. Absolutely. And lastly, in closing the conversation today, could you please share a few words of inspiration which you'd like to impart to young women that are listening to us today? I think I think I come back to the to Judy Lamini's book. It's about equal but different. We are all equal. We are all born equal. We all can. Women can. There isn't a single thing that a woman can't do. Not, not like one thing. We were told we can't go into mines because it was heavy work. But actually, we leave children. I mean, look at my body size. And if you look at my children, how big they are. I lifted those children. There's absolutely nothing that we can't do. I think that can attitude is important. You can do this. You just need to make sure that you're grounded and you are ethical and you surround yourself with people that will affirm and support you. And you walk away from relationships that don't build you, that are going constantly questioning you. Stay with people that really add value to you. But adding value means that they can tell you off when you're going wrong and say, but really, did you have to do this? And did you think about this? People really that have your interest at heart. But also develop yourself. In the final instance, this world out there needs somebody who's been to school. Uh, if you are going to be a CEO, unfortunately, you must go to school and you must continue to learn. You must have a that edge and yearning for knowledge and for new ideas. You must be open and open for ideas and constantly develop yourself. Corporate South Africa and the corporates internationally now, globally, their programs, they sponsor us to develop ourselves. So raise your hand to develop yourself, whatever it is. Sometimes it will mean for the next three months you aren't sleeping at night. That's fine. Just constantly develop yourself. I have a PhD. I'm currently studying for a master's in philosophy. And part of it is about I'm constantly seeking new knowledge so that I can contribute in any situation I'm able to leave a mark. So I think as women, as young women, and also the globe is looking for women because we are the undertapped resource. And I think globally, uh, the world has woken up to say there's a resource here that is underutilized. 
So be ready and be there and lift your hand also and say, I'm, I'm, I'm the one. Let's, not, let's be ready to, let's not wait until we are 137% ready. Men, 37%, they're already lifting their hand, I'm ready. Let's, let's just be ready and let's lift our hands when we're ready and let's constantly affirm ourselves. Thank you so much for sharing insights into your life, telling us about what has worked for you, looking at people to not box themselves into their own misconceptions mm. of what it is to be a woman, to be a successful woman, and to start realizing their ambitions, continuously developing and transforming to reach for those stars. Thank you. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Dr. Lulu Guagua, who is the CEO of Lareco Investments, chairperson of Aracon Africa, and non-executive director of First Rand, Massmart, and Sun International.